What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tanya Brown, a junior strategist who works in behavioral change, focusing on charities and NGOs at MNC Saatchi in London. And I have Simi Nija, who's a senior strategist at Re-Agency, which is also part of the MNC Saatchi group. They both do important work with diversity and inclusion, and that's what we're going to discuss today. So Tanya and Simi, welcome. Can we just talk MNC Saatchi and what work you both do there and how the group sits together now? Because these things do flex in unusual ways every sort of four or five years. And then I think through that, we can lay out the work that you're doing in the diversity and inclusion uh, groups that you're involved with. And then we can get into your personal journeys and into the topics in a more detailed way. So let's start with MNC Saatchi. Tanya, how does it all fit together? Sure. So um, MNC Saatchi is a sort of, it's a network agency. There's a group of um, different companies that all sit underneath the banner. Simi works for an agency called Re and I work for an agency called World Services and we both do very different things. I won't talk about what Re does. I'll let Simi do that. But um, World Services specifically only works with public sector, NGO, multilaterals, charities and governments across the world. You know, some of my works in Africa and Pakistan, for example, so it's it's a really fascinating part of the business. RE is a branding uh, and design experience agency. Um, so we work across um, all sorts of sectors from B2B to B2C, um, currently working in sort of cyber intelligence, but also um, anything as far as sort of agriculture to, you know, small consumer electric products and, and everything in between. So, yeah very much on the strategic side but it's it's a design agency but, but where the two fit together because they are quite different worlds is within the MNC Saatchi group which has its heart in advertising and its legacy in advertising but over the years has grown and acquired um, to become the largest um, independent creative network of agencies and agency specialists so our different agencies are, are two of those specialisms but these networks that Tanya mentioned um, which are uh, diversity and inclusion arms, um, employee-led networks, do run across all of the different agencies across the group. So we sit as co-chairs um, as part of a, a group um, which runs across the business um, and has a lot of links within different specialisms. So we bring our different specialisms to the cause um, and to our different causes and purposes. Question before we go into uh, the DNI discussion. Uh, between you both, we have Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Why go into advertising? You get a lot of that. And I think I got a lot of it in interview because because actually technically, well, there's the advertising world. And then I think the branding design world is sort of a subsect of that. But I did actually start off um, interviewing to be a planner um, and sort of going into the advertising world. And I did get that question a lot, which was you're um, an Oxbridge grad. Um, and obviously the industry is full of Oxbridge grads. Do you think you deserve it more or less because you went to Oxford? Um, so it is an interesting one that people seem to be People and, and and rightly so, there should be questions asked around it. I suppose like my answer at the time and probably now is that I don't think I necessarily gravitated towards it more or expect to be in that world. If anything, it, it was always a bit of an adjacent move because a lot of my friends went into quite traditional corporate roles, be that sort of lawyers or accounting or banking and finance. And so for me, this always felt a little bit left field, but then you get into the world and you're like, oh, everyone to Oxbridge. So it's an interesting one. I think it's it's something where I'm glad I, I had the opportunity 
university and definitely my education has helped me to kind of get into the to the industry but I think there's a lot of work to do in terms of diversifying because you don't want it to be too comfortable and sometimes I think being around people who are too similar you do feel a little bit too comfortable so it definitely needs a shake up. Anyway, why advertising? So there's two reasons to this story. I worked as a recruiter before I went to Cambridge when I was 25. And I went to Ogilvy to meet with them because I was looking to make a client relationship. And I walked across their floor and they were working with BP at the time. And they had a hologram of a like a pond um, on the floor. And I walked across it and I was like, oh my God, I want to work somewhere like this one day. So that sort of always stayed with me. That memory was really formative. And then I sort of didn't go into advertising really. Part of World Services, um, there's a team called the Research Insights and Evaluation Team, um, and they do a lot of research for communications, but they also do standalone research projects. So I was brought in to work on a project on um, understanding barriers to accessing safe abortion in um, the Sadak region in Africa. I bought into that project. I didn't necessarily buy into MNC Saatchi or, or the team or anything like that. I was like, that's the project I want to work on. And so from research, I sort of was like, I've got loads of ideas. And sometimes I say them out loud and people seem interested. And then from there I sort of developed this interest in strategy and um, I was really lucky to work on um, an FGM thing which required some uh, well a lot of research and I sort of got really on really well with the head of planning who was new and he's taken me under his wing and I've very much become a planner from that so it's, it's been a very accidental incremental change mm-hmm. um, but to Simi's point I think that there is something about having gone to I haven't I've, I mean it sounds so pretentious but I've been to Cambridge and I've been to Oxford and I think there is something about it has a status symbol or a very obvious sign that you have value and I think it conveys value in a very simplistic monolithic way it's like this person's smart and I think that those that isn't just the attribute that, that works in advertising in fact I know it's not and I think that that's that's what people have leveraged before and I think when you are looking for people like yourself as a recruit like when you're recruiting that that is your heuristic you look for people that are like you and if you are if you have been to Oxford you have been to Cambridge you want someone else like that because you know what you're buying Um, and I think I think there's definitely an element of that and I think Simi's absolutely right we need to diversify and when I do work with people that haven't been to Oxford and Cambridge it's such a relief because they're not like me Um, Mm. and it and it's great and it's it's a breath of fresh air I think the two the two parts of what you both discussed that I think are interesting are elite education but advertising is not an elite industry for everyone around the world in some places it is right Mm. so there can be this disconnect and then the second one is discovering what you want to do in your 20s and maybe even older in a way where people around you might not want you to make that decision and I like for example I talked to a lot of strategy folk in India and there are definitely a big crew of them who went to engineering who studied engineering or who studied law and they're like I don't want to do this for the rest of my life and they ended up in advertising but they weren't always supported by their families and so that's why I like getting into this particular topic. Like I said before I had a really non-traditional background and actually I my mum is very aspirational she brought me up as a single parent she's she's like a product of um, the meritocracy if there is one which I don't necessarily believe there is but she's a product of that and she had uh, aspirations for me but when I was 16 I was just incredibly immature and I really flunked my GCSEs and I dropped out of school Um, and so you never would have thought that I would have gone to Cambridge and, and gone to Oxford after 
after that. And so my mum, when I did any of those things, um, she was proud and, and surprised, I guess. And I think she's she's happy that I have, I guess, purpose and meaning in my life. So I think compared to where I was when I was 16, I think she's relieved rather than like condemning of the fact I went to, went into advertising. The cultural point, though, is is really interesting because I'm from an Indian background. Both my parents are Indian and first generation immigrants. So they both moved here um, and had me, my brother here. And there is absolutely that sort of cultural and I think to an extent it is a kind of an immigrant mindset where you come for better prospects and you work so that your children can have better prospects, be that higher education or different career and earning potential, quite frankly. Um, and I think my my parents, they were never pushy. They never wanted me particularly to go to Oxbridge. You know, I, I was just quite academic and enjoyed all that stuff. But career-wise, yeah, there was, I mean, they, they couldn't really tell me what to do. And so I think, because I was quite headstrong, so they couldn't really force me down a career path. But I mean, we talked about it a lot and they just didn't understand a creative industry, a creative job. They thought, you know, creative thinking, creative writing is a hobby. You know, they're like, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you write stories in your spare time and then you can have a real job. <laughs> so they didn't quite understand it. And I think that's okay. I think it's about having honest conversations because I mean, even now, I, I don't think my mum really understands, you know, what I do. And it's interesting working from home. I just went to see her every the weekend and was there for a couple of days working and she actually got to see some of the conversations and some of the projects and what what I was working on which I think is really important so I do think it's about bringing other generations who don't maybe understand the industry in and explaining kind of how it works and the fact that there is commercial impetus and it's not just you know it's not purely a hobby it's actually it is a career it is an industry a growing industry so we've heard about MNC Saatchi and the structure there now you're you're both co-chairs of different diversity and inclusion groups, correct? Mm -hmm. Tanya? It's called the Equals Network. Tell us what it is and what its focus is. We have six employee-led networks um, which represent either minority or um, underrepresented groups. So um, my group is about gender equality and we focus on women and non-binary people in the business. But we also have um, the Heritage Network, which Simone will talk about in a second. Um, we have a family network, a network for juniors, a network for mental and physical well-being. And I think I might be forgetting one. Am I forgetting one, Simi? Proud. Proud. And we have one for the LGBTQAI plus community. And so the Equals Network, as I just said, is for women and non-binary within the business. And we are employees, so we're not specifically dedicated to diversity and inclusion, although there is a whole pillar for that now. It's woven within the business structure, which is great. So we are very much sort of an ear for senior management, but we also run, I think Simi does as well, committees. So Mm -hmm. we have a committee of 35 people, for example, Mm -hmm. um, and we try and democratise the process as much as possible so we meet with them monthly Um, and then we also have people that lead different work streams so if we're doing a particular activation we'll have someone within the committee and that can be anyone Um, I'm a junior strategist so I'm not particularly senior so we have everyone from business director level through to AEs who've just joined the business which is really great and it's really um, fantastic to see them being empowered to lead stuff and and, you know take on important projects. How do you know if the work that you're doing as a group is working? What what do you measure against? What do you have to 
report back. I guess you have to report back to MSC Saatchi, right? What would you report back about? As a whole, MSC Saatchi is currently going through a real um, diversity inclusion measurement project, which is both in terms of our demographic makeup, um, but also in terms of the lived experience. And so there's that piece of work that's going on behind the scenes, and we very much dovetail into that. But um, as the Equals Network, we are trying to measure as much of our work as possible. I've just done the F test in the UK, which has really like fed into how we're looking at this now. So for example, we, we will also measure demographics. So some of our work we do, um, we want to purposefully include men because we look at it more as a behavior change thing. So we want to include men. So we, we take measures of who's there and then we're starting to look at more behavioral measures. So today, for example, we ran some domestic abuse support network training for teams across the whole of MSC Saatchi. And so we'll, we'll start taking like self-efficacy measures. Do you feel able to support someone should they disclose domestic abuse to you, etc.? So we're quite fresh. Look, I've been doing it for six months. Um, so it's something we're starting to roll out. And it's, it's a principle and a, and a pillar and a foundation for what we're trying to achieve. Did you say the F test? It's an IPA exam. They ran them. It was great, actually, free during the first lockdown. And they're doing, I think they're doing a couple of free ones now. But basically, it's all about measurement um, and how we measure the success of campaigns. And um, they run an awards process alongside it. So if you have a particularly, I guess, effective uh, campaign, then you can enter it and, and win the prizes and stuff like that. So it's, it's quite it's quite popular in the UK. Timmy Heritage, that's a BAME network. BAME is a, from what I understand, a British acronym. Please spell it out mm-hmm. and then tell us the, about the work that you're doing. It. Yeah, so BAME is Black and Minority Ethnic. And you know, as with all of all of our networks, language is obviously contentious. And I think I, was, I wasn't part of the decision to change the name to Heritage, but I think it's, we still use BAME, but I think people, not everyone identifies with that. And the fact that it lumps lots of people from lots of different cultures and backgrounds together into one. So heritage felt just a more neutral <clears throat> term that didn't have its own baggage. But yeah, as Tanya, Tanya very well explained how the groups work and what we do, we're one of those arms that is focused on people from different ethnic backgrounds. And I suppose it's not just people of colour. And that's that's something we need to remember. I think it's people from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, you know, that could be different places in Europe or, you know, it could be if you're Irish or other backgrounds like that. But essentially what, what we do is in four sorts of strands. The first is around amplifying. So really being that collective voice and ear to the ground for um, employees from different cultural backgrounds. So really amplifying their interests and, and being there to represent those people in the workforce to accountable members of senior leadership. And that's, I think I mentioned, we have those CEO meetings every every month. And that's a chance for us to really tell the leaders of the business, you know, what, what's coming back from these different groups, if there are any particular grievances or any needs or any sort of rumblings or trends or anything like that, we can amplify that to the relevant people. Mm-hmm. So again, tied to that, then there's support. So creating those safe spaces um, for concerns and, and um, something we did over, and I actually only got involved six months ago as well. But, but the first thing, the first initiative I did, and this was before I was a co-chair, was after all the George Floyd, you know, awful happenings in, in the US and then obviously in the UK as well, there was a lot of a lot of debate and conversation around around race. And so we held we held anti-racism sessions because I, we knew that, and I think this is where I was going to get onto this, but there's some stuff that leadership does and that comes from top down. And when you were talking about measurement, I was like, right, they that's what they do, the hard metrics and the study and the survey that they're running. And then I think there's 
the bottom-up stuff, which which the networks really do. So we put together these sessions that weren't in any way sort of vetted. They were open space. It was an open space. And we had about 160 people attend. And it was just basically almost a sort of research forum or a focus group where we hashed out some questions. And the first the first was just a temperature check on how people were feeling. And people could, you know, willingly talk about how they'd been feeling, if they'd been feeling overwhelmed, what sorts of emotions they were experiencing. And then we went on to do we think MC Saatchi's tackles issues of race well, generally as a company? And then how might we improve racial diversity in, in different elements? So that was, that's just one example of the support that we can offer. And then there's Celebrate, obviously, because I think it, last year there was a lot of, it was very heavy. And I think those are really important debates and questions. And ultimately, we want change to happen. But I do think there's a, there is a need to kind of have that positive strand as well, the celebration. And not just people celebrating their own cultures, but people celebrating other people's cultures. And then learn. So we were talking about this just before this podcast, and you mentioned, you know, language, you might not always say the right thing or a question might come out a bit wrong or, you know, and I think that's the case with everyone. And we have, we realized and want to tell people that it's not about, we're not here to educate, you know, me and the other co-chairs, we aren't experts. You know, we are our own individual selves from our own backgrounds with our own experiences, just because we're people of color doesn't mean that we know <laughs> and we're all learning. And in the same way that anyone that comes to one of our sessions or initiatives, it's about no one's perfect. And as long as you come with the right intentions, that's enough. Absolutely ask the awkward question or the the silly question, because so long as you ask with the right intention, then people shouldn't take offense. And Mm -hmm. it's not about calling people out or checking, checking your language. And it's not academic. Tanya and I talk about this a lot. It's shouldn't make these issues overly academic because then it becomes really exclusive. And I saw a bit of that at Oxford, talking about Oxford. Um, some of these, you know, feminism groups and racial equality groups I was a part of, it just became so academic that you lost the point of it and it lost yeah. the de- democratizing kind of effect. Yeah, it can be difficult to deal with someone who, when you interact with them around this topic, they throw their PhD at you. Right, exactly. It's, 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 it's actually quite a non-empathetic inhumane it blocks the whole interaction. It blocks it, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. You know, you're like, well, you're not really a champion for this. You're just a champion for your own intellectual sort of... Yeah, yeah. It, it can feel like that. Question, diversity and inclusion, like corporate social responsibility, CSR, sometimes in history, it's been a department, it's out there, it's ring fans, and it's like, oh, let them get together. It'll, it'll make them feel good. But I know that both of you, you, you want to help the agencies that you work in, the industry that you work in, mm-hmm. change. You want Mm -hmm. the agency business to be different. What would that look like in the future for you? Using MNC Saatchi as a model is is a really interesting one. They've they've really gone through a process of change for the last two years. And I think it starts with networks. We're we're the bottom up, as as Simi's just said. But what they've also done is woven diversity and inclusion into their new business structure, into the new business strategy. Mm. So there are representatives at every level. So we've got stakeholder buy-in in each individual group agency. There's a um, diversity and inclusion champion, which will be someone who isn't necessarily the CEO, but someone who has um, a voice and has influence in those areas. We have CEO meetings, as Simi said, every month. We have a vo- we have an opportunity to raise anything to them. And then we also have people that sit on the PLC who are champions for us as well. So I think that that's really interesting looking at that, seeing it woven into every single facet of the business. I mean, we're changing now and it's, it's new and it's fresh and we don't know if it works yet. We're hopeful, but we'll see. But I think, you know, 
other iterations of that would be really fascinating to understand and, and learnings to be had from, from speaking to other agencies and what they're doing. Can you give me some really practical examples of how what you're doing might affect a project team working on something right now, a project team pitching right now, someone seeking out a promotion, someone looking to recruit mm. someone. Give me some really practical examples of, of potentially how the people you work with have changed over the past year. And obviously I'm asking that question without you having to point out what was wrong, but like what mm. practical examples. I think there's a lot that's going on with Heritage where we're going to start talking to HR, but I know across the, the networks, there are lots of, there's lots of policy work. And I know, Tanya, you can talk to policy work in terms of, um, you know, with a family network, um, they've changed policy in terms of, you know, with COVID, that there's an actual policy in that, which affects sort of, uh, and calls out families and people with, who are parents and have parental caring responsibility. There's provisions around that. I, I guess from a heritage perspective, we haven't done any policy work yet, but you mentioned hiring. We've started to put together a list of different recruiters and individual freelancers who can help with hiring more diverse set of people. And so going to them, if you have a need for a, you know an ECD or a senior role, even not a senior role, where perhaps there aren't as many candidates, which is something we hear a lot that we want to hire diversely, but none of the candidates put forward are, you know, of an ethnic minority background or we don't we didn't have any women apply. So there are practically, you know, putting together these lists of recruiters that when when agencies within the group want to recruit, they don't just go through the central recruit, recruiter that potentially isn't doesn't have access or doesn't have a frame of reference as wide as that. Um, they can make sure they they get the CVs on their desk and they get the applications, which will allow them to hire in the most diverse way, but without compromising quality. That's always the you know that's always a thing, and, and no one disagrees that obviously the best candidate should get the job. But if you, you can't find the people because they're not within your pools or within your networks, then nothing will ever change. So that's that's one of the ways that we're trying to move the business on. Tanya, do you have an example as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you, you sort of said in a project team, how would this uh, affect them? And I think one of the perspectives we've taken is, um, I'm just going to use women as an example here and, and exclude non-binary people for a second. But I think that, say, for example, we, we take a single person, we look at them holistically. So we know that what happens outside of work affects them in work. Um, so that's where our initiative around um, domestic abuse training came in, which we know across the globe has the incidence has increased drastically during, with lockdowns and COVID and the pandemic. Um, and the UK is no different. So we've started training uh, members of the team. Um, so starting with HR and people teams, moving all the way through to line managers. Um, so if there is ever an instance around that at work, there's, there's a lot that can support them. And another side of that is around policy. So we have quite a robust policy at the moment where we can offer flexible working time, um, so if people are unable to come in because they're being restricted by a partner, for example, um, they can come in later or they can come in earlier, whatever works for them. There's um, compassionate leave, et cetera, around that. And at the moment, we're looking to change that policy and make it much more flexible um, and adapt it towards the COVID situation um, and helping people access those services at home and access those opportunities to do so. The other side of that is that's the person that they're bringing their personal life, I guess, to the work or that what they experience at home is coming to work. But there are also career related aspirations or barriers to aspirations that we need to overcome when you're thinking about that person. So um, you mentioned access to promotions, um, which I think is really interesting and a massive part of the work that we do is empowering. And I think the word empowerment has some connotations and it, you know, some people think it might be condescending, but it's the best word we have at the moment.
moment for what we do. So we'll be running workshops about how to negotiate better pay. Another part that we're doing at the moment is around the gender pay gap. I think it's in the UK. There's the gender pay gap in marketing services is 28% mm. and the national average is 8.9%. So we're going to do some activations around that. And it's, it's actually an interesting point to talk about it because we don't know what those activations are, what our potential is, but we are working with the people and HR teams to see what can be done. Um, and that will become a policy initiative. But it, mm. it, it's also an opportunity for us to listen to the people that are in the business um, and, and share their concerns and sort of feeds into Simi's idea around um, amplification mm. and, and share those share their voices. Uh, and what about the work as it's being made? There's one example that does come to mind and I'll be delicate with it, but apparently there was a fast, not apparently, I mean, there was, there was an ad created by a fast food company in the UK and it mm. featured a black family talking about mm. order, ordering home delivered food and they said something like anything but Chinese, which is obviously... Mm you know, going to get people upset because of anti-Chinese xenophobia. Mm. Have you seen, discussed, come across any interesting ways of working to ensure that something like that might or might not mm. happen? We are working, the Equals Network are working to spearhead a um, what we're calling allyship month. So it's really a space for people to coalesce around allyship and understand it. And it's broken down into sort of the way people think about things. So uncovering unconscious biases, which is where all of this starts. The second is around how we speak and how we communicate about diversity and inclusion. And Simi's already spoken about having these safe spaces to ask questions that feel awkward, mm. that feel hard and, and providing space to navigate. So any linguistic difficulties, what's the right term, etc. And then there's another part of Allyship Month, which is about acting. And one component of that is about acting and bring your allyship through into how we create our work. So making sure we are representing women or non-binary people, BAME community, LGBTQAI+, without using stereotypes, without using tropes. And I think that that's where really we're going to start seeing change that affects millions of people when we can move away from doing faux pas like that. And, and fundamentally, I, I just think all the work we're doing at, at this sort of grassroots level to build a, a more a company with different people, different voices, different everything, that that's the only way you get to avoid things like that, because there's there's checks and balances throughout the business, because people are all looking at the work through different eyes and different experiential lenses. If you get five people and four of them have had very similar life experiences from you know where they grew up and what schools they went to and where they go on holiday, then you will have work that is blind and has blind spots. So I think the only way, I don't think it's about creating like police sort of checks on, on everything that goes out because creativity needs to be kind of interesting. It needs to be, there can be kind of inherent controversy in creative. That's There's no bad thing there, but it's about those blind spots that are unintentional and could be offensive, but there's no sort of, there's no intention or there's no sort of meaning or creativity behind it. It's just purely, it's just purely in someone's blind spots. So I think the only way is to start to have people from different perspectives as much as possible working on the projects every day. You know, I think it's really interesting and, and useful to point out gentle behaviors that can happen if you're in a, in a place of, I guess, power. You can use the word privilege, but yeah. power. And they are if you're in a meeting or working on a project that you're like, hang on, Simi was talking just then. Or what do you, <laughs> what do you think, Tanya? Or Simi, yeah. you've done some research about this. You know, Exactly. So that, 
exactly. that there are really easy ways that don't have to be big initiatives for people with a sense of power to bring people in. It's about recognizing that the power structure and that you might hold all the power. And so how can you share that power? But people often have good intentions. They just don't realize. They might not realize that people, you know, from different perspectives feel underrepresented or feel that they aren't confident. So once, once you might go to some sort of meetings or initiatives, it's about triggering a thought process and triggering that empathy, which people don't often tap into at work because they're, you know, they're in their lane and they're doing their thing and they, they don't stop to think, I wonder how Tanya feels about this. I wonder how Simi felt in that meeting. You know, they don't, they just don't have that frame of reference. So a lot of what we do is trying to bring people in so that they can get out of their own echo chambers. Tanya, mm. you had a bit of a 180 with some of these topics from what I understand. I don't want to ask you a long, detailed question because I might misuse <laughs> words, but I'd love for you to talk about it. Yeah, sure. No, no problems. I think um, it's interesting, the point around empathy that, that Simi uh, just spoke about, which is sort of the point that I've got to with people that are on the journey of starting their behaviour change. So I've sort of mentioned a few times that I took a non-traditional route to university and I went when I was 25 to Cambridge. So um, quite a while after other people. And before I went to Cambridge, I lived I guess quite a privileged life and very sheltered I grew up in the um, countryside in the UK and everyone looked like me you know I, I didn't interact with really anyone other than people that rode horses which is what I did um, <laughs> and I, I went to uh, I went to Cambridge and I, I guess I was quite conservative both in my political views but also in how I understood diversity and inclusion and I studied politics and sociology and psychology and it was it was such a indoctrination or sort of a eye-opening experience for me in, in reading about these subjects but I think for me what really happened was I was put into a group a friendship circle which became my safe space and my friends were much more liberal than I was um, and they gave me room to understand and explore the questions that I had to help me get to a point where I became as liberal as they were through compassion and kindness it wasn't always like that like, there were times when it was like Tanya that's offensive and I'm like okay thank you but <laughs> they, they helped me navigate those moments of being like oh I shouldn't have said that my, my opinion is wrong and they gave me space to go away and you know I'm stubborn and I'm like nope I'm right <laughs> um, and I'd go away and think about it and I'd come back the next day and we actually were Cambridge and Oxford are all made of colleges there's a much smaller group of people it's not like a big university we'd all go down to breakfast together and, and we'd have that conversation at times it was intense we, we spoke about politics a lot and you know it, some of the time it was claustrophobic but I feel like now I want to and I feel emotionally able to help people have those conversations and navigate tricky tricky challenges that they're having within themselves about how they understand the world I, I guess I was very lucky and I'd, I'd like to be able to confer that to other people yeah I, look I really appreciate you sharing that Simi have you had any like really big epiphanies and 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 sort of changes of points of view through this kind of work as well it's an interesting one. I think I've just become, I think growing up being from, you know, an ethnic minority background, I went to a pretty diverse school um, in North London. Um, and so it was, it was quite diverse. And my, my friendship group from home is quite diverse. And then I went to Oxford and there were, you know, just hardly any people who weren't white at all. And that was a real, not 
not shocked because I, I knew that and I sort of had anticipated that, but I think it made me feel less comfortable. And I think imposter syndrome really kicked in in terms of, you know, I don't have the same background or reference points as a lot of these people because it wasn't just, it was obviously class and and race. And and so I think I, I don't think I would have been comfortable then leading heritage initiatives or talking about BAME initiatives. I think I sort of was less comfortable with that side of myself and I think struggled quite a lot with that part of my identity um especially you know a second generation immigrant you go home and my parents are speaking Punjabi and cooking Punjabi food and then you go back to Oxford and you're in you know it's just a totally different environment so yeah I think I think not so much an epiphany but growing through conversations and and working in our industry and then you know really wanting to champion and rally for this for causes and and for people of color because i think or sorry culturally diverse people and groups because i feel like i've just come a lot more to terms with that experience and the fact that maybe you know it does make you know being from a different background does make things harder and it does make you feel uncomfortable and therefore we need to talk about it and people who aren't from different backgrounds don't automatically understand why someone who's British or you know born in this country and speaks the same language and whatever whatever but looks different or you know comes from a different ethnic background why they would feel any different and I think I sort of denied that because it, it affected me quite a lot previously whereas now I think I'm much more comfortable with admitting that there is something to talk about and it's important that we talk about it. Yeah. How, how would you respond? Like, I, I want to be delicate with this question in a way, but I still, I still want to ask it because I see this mm. stuff more and more online in our industry. Like people who are like, you're just virtue signaling. England, Britain was white. It's, it's incredibly white. I look at Wikipedia. I was looking at the Isle of Wight, ironically, yesterday, the Wikipedia <laughs> page. It's 97 point something percent white. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, you leave the cities and it's that's it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So you're virtue signaling. Why do you have to bring everything back to gender and race shouldn't it just be the best person for the job everybody has equal opportunity why should i change i i have a right to be here i've been here my whole life like someone with that point of view and there are a lot of people who probably at an instinctive level have that point of view in, in this absolutely industry, right uh, and then some of them are vocal about it out loud and they might have different quirks about how they express it so that's less mm. easy to jump on how would how do you want to engage with that person through the work that you're doing i have had a lot of those conversations even personally i'm i'm in a relationship we've been in a relationship a long time with someone who is a white very middle class man and grew up in the countryside you know outside of winchester and is you know very had a very different experience to me and you know we were together and i don't think he really i mean we talk, we talk about race a lot and you know for the first few years it was very much me trying to explain without without him getting defensive or without getting angry or, you know, just explain that these things matter and there's an inherent disadvantage or there's an inherent bias that a lot of people carry in, in their heads towards certain people from, from, for lots of different reasons. And it's not their fault, but, you know, that exists and you can't deny it exists. So I've had that conversation many times with, with friends and people close to me. And, and also even professionally, I think, you know, it's more delicate, but I guess my response is always... <sighs> I don't know. It's sort of, it's hard because I think people do tend to get quite defensive and they think, well, you know, yeah, England, England is a white Christian country. And so, you know, why would you have representation? Actually, if you look at it, stats, there's only X amount of black people and X amount of this people and 
I think I think the the reason that people react like that is because they're scared mostly and they're scared for a couple of reasons. One is that they don't want to change the status quo probably inherently because they've benefited from it and also scared that people will say that they're that they're racist and they just they're not. They just they just like things the way they are and they they're used to them. And so why does it why do we need to make such a fuss about things? I think it's it, 99% of the time it's not coming from a place of any malice. Um, so I do think it's about being kind and just understanding rather than putting a brick wall up and going, no, you don't understand. You don't care. I do think it's about trying to talk to them about why they feel so strongly or why they're getting defensive and, and why it's making them have such a strong emotional reaction and unpicking that because usually it's fear of something or, or a new idea they haven't engaged with before. I'll just add to that. I think it's really interesting. There are so many people now that would agree with the concept of equality, but what they can't understand or what worries them is the idea of equity, which is the methodology. Um, and I think that's that, like they're going to lose something. And I think that's what they worry about. I think Simeon probably has a bit more, more patience with me than in these sort of conversations. I absolutely try and go into them with, with kindness. I, I love talking to people that want to engage and want to try and understand my point of view. And I'll always try and do the same, I guess. Um, um, mm. Although my, my opinion is probably not going to change, but I think the, the issue comes is when you try and explain something and they, and you're, this is, this is a fact, here's a stat for you, for example. And they're like, no, that's not, that's not reality. That's not my experience. And I think I find it quite hard to move past that, if that makes sense. This is why we need equity because X is happening, but you said you believe in equality, but you're not prepared to let someone else step in front of you and, and go for that job or, or you, you can't acknowledge mm. that they, they need that help to get there. So, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting equity, equality um, are two different things. And I think understanding those two different those as two different concepts helps you understand why people are defensive or angry or against it. I think to me, at the heart of this, it's a very simplistic heart is like, don't you want other people to do OK in life, too? Exactly. Like, I don't think it's it's way more complicated than that, but it, it starts there. That's it at the end of the day. And I think it's it's being open to the fact that just because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean that someone else hasn't experienced it. And often I think people again, I think people don't want to, so I'm going to talk about, you know, like racial politics or, you know, racism. I think a lot of white people that I know don't want to admit that that's real because it means that the world is not such a great place and their experience of it isn't the universal experience. And that's very sad. You know, and I think a lot of people don't want to believe that, you know, stop and search happens to a disproportionate amount of men of color. I don't think people want to admit that in an airport, people of color get questioned more. People just don't want to admit that that's true because it's, it is scary and it means that their experience isn't necessarily everything. And I, I'd say to those people, it's like, well, just listen to other people's experiences and those experiences are real just because you haven't felt them or seen them doesn't mean they're not true. So I would yeah. just try and listen to other people without having an immediate reaction. Like try not to just react, try just to listen because I think often people do just react and they're like, yeah, but, but what were you doing? What were you saying? And what was he doing? And it's like, just listen and then digest and the more people you listen to I mean, you might change your, your, your opinion final final question uh, it'd be great to hear both of your points of view on the, on this particular question advertising and people who are from different backgrounds as in especially non-white in the us and in the uk not that many in the industry and often the ones who get in don't feel that they're going to get promoted, that they're going to progress. They don't see people like them ahead of them. Like someone who is more conservative politically might say, 
that's just an excuse. Take responsibility for yourself. Don't blame the fact that you can't see people like you ahead of you. To the person who's feeling that, who feels that there are these little things happening in meetings or that they're getting excluded or that they're not able to bring more of themselves to the work that mm. they're doing. And and someone who, who actually might feel isolated, who might not have access to, I mean, you mentioned six groups within the net, MSC Saatchi network, right? Yeah. What kind of steps can they take to get on a surer footing for themselves, especially as far as their livelihood? within this industry? If we're talking specifically about race here, I definitely think Simi is the best person to answer that. But I think if we're talking generally about underrepresented or minority groups, I think there's a couple of things you can do. I think the first is look for a company and culture which is going to welcome and foster um, and nurture you. Um, and there are agencies like that. I know there's 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 multiple across London now. Do your research, see if there are groups or, or um, networks like our own in those, in those agencies. Um, I think that's one. Um, if you're not happy where you are, leave and go to one. I think another thing is, is that these employee-led networks started from the bottom. It was someone's idea and, and they've grown to what they are now. I think not everyone wants to do that and that's absolutely fine. But I think there are opportunities within um, agencies now to start initiatives like our own. Um, and mm-hmm. it's just one action or, or plant that seed with someone who's more senior, who who is going to action it. And I think that if you could be a change maker, be a change maker. If not, maybe pave the way for someone else or, or, or empower or help them do it. I think those are sort of two pieces of advice that I would probably give. Simi? Yeah, I think those are great. Um, I think I would add, look for a mentor and that could be someone in the industry that you know, or it could be someone that you don't know, but you reach out to that is, you know, if, if it, you're, you know, someone from a particular background that is of the same background as you, that you could just ask for advice because I think they would have, they would have felt what you're feeling at some point in their career undoubtedly to just trying to get some sort of pastoral um but even sort of career advice in terms of how to how to deal with those sorts of meetings or conversations or interactions um i think that always helps just to just to hear someone else who's like i've been there and this is how this is how i handled it the other thing i was going to say was yeah like you may not see people ahead of you and that and that's that's really tough. I think you need to be able to at least give your team around you a chance though. So whether that's your line manager or whoever you feel comfortable talking to, you know, just mentioning it and saying, you know, I've been feeling isolated or I've been feeling left out of conversations in meetings. And I think it might be because of this, you know, of, of me feeling different or being different. Have you noticed that? And what can we do about it? And I think giving them the chance and it might not go well, that conversation, they may get defensive, but I think you need to at least give them the chance because there's nothing wrong with having that conversation or bringing it up and see how they react. And, you know, as, as Tanya says, if it's not the kind of organization that wants to listen and wants to help you to, to overcome whatever barriers you're, you're feeling or you're facing in reality, then maybe it's not the right workplace for you because there definitely are agencies that are evolving and progressing. This is something that's not just a fad. It's not going away. It's only going to become more and more prevalent. So I would say give give your team a chance and have the conversation. Um, and then if that if they're not having the right response, uh, you don't feel comfortable with their response, then I would say, yeah, you don't have to stay where you are. Look for look for an agency that is more representative and, and cares more about those minorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just by ending with a question that's about what the individual in that situation can do could lead to someone saying, why are you making it that person's problem? But I, I think we have to think of 
all the stakeholders in this. And so it is on the individual to try to work some of this out and it's on the businesses to try to work some of this out and people with a little bit of power. You could be two or three years ahead of mm. someone or just two or three years into a company where someone's new, mm. taking an interest in them, asking them gentle yeah. questions, asking people to be quiet and not talk over them when they speak in a meeting. It's all of that together. It's not just about the individual. It's it's all of that together. And for what it's worth, I, I think it's it just starts with a question. Don't you want to world in which other people have a shot, like have a good shot, you know, mm. I just wish that was like the, the central question and sorry for ending with a rant and lecture. I, it's probably not my place <laughs> to, to really end that way, but no, Simi, where can people find you on the internet? Um, probably my LinkedIn um, would be the best place to find me. Drop me a note or anything on LinkedIn. I'm okay. always on there. Thank you. Tanya, where are you most active? Yeah, the, the same. Um, drop me a note on LinkedIn. And just to say, if there's anyone listening that is interested in starting up employee-led networks or initiatives like ours, um, drop Simi and I a note. Um, if we can help you, we're very happy to help you in whatever way we can. Ooh, Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you both for being here on Sweathead today. Such a big topic, so important, H- hard to get into it in a like <laughs> technical and deep way in the time that we spent together. But I, I know that the, this kind of conversation will affect a handful of people in a really important way. And so I, I just thank you for, for being here and sharing your stories, your epiphanies and uh, your strivings as well. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Peace.